Welcome to Truly Creepy with Brittany and Sarah. Hi. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I mean, I say that like we haven't been sitting here for almost two hours chatting. <laughs> I know. We're in the same room. Woohoo! Finally. It's rare since I live an hour away. It is. It is rare. So if we take advantage of that and instead of jumping right into it, we squirrel for about two hours before we actually get to the podcast. We see your kids back there and they came out here and they were like, you guys haven't gotten started yet. (laughs) They literally watched an entire movie (laughs) and we hadn't even started yet. Oh, they're good sports. They're good sports. They are. They are. So what do you have for us today all right this one it's a bit of a heavy case so i'm gonna start with the trigger warning okay now i feel like most of my stories have some sort of triggering experience in them but for this one especially i want to say this case does talk a lot about rape and sexual assault so if that is something that you cannot listen to i understand and you are more than welcome to skip this episode and no hard feelings because it's definitely a hard one and not very widely covered okay i've heard maybe one maybe two podcasts on this one wow so not very many so not very many and it was unsolved for 26 years holy cow so but it is solved now well that's good which i like yeah you guys know how I feel about unsolved cases. Last week I told you about the two Mary Morrises, and that one's unsolved. And it's, I think, about the same time frame as this one, so. Well, at least this one's solved. That's good. And um, we're in Texas again, which wasn't planned. Huh. The Mary Morris murders were in Houston, and now we're going on over to Dallas. Okay. We're just skipping around Texas. Taking a whole day journey to the other side of Texas. <laughs> I actually have no idea how far Houston and Dallas are from one another. They could be closer than that. I mean, Texas is huge. But I'm so. pretty sure it's a several hour drive. Yeah. Uh, so we are going back to 1984. Okay. My parents had graduated high school and we're getting married soon. So I mean, going back. Yeah. Back to. Back to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm not sorry. (laughs) Anyone who knows me knows that I respond in music lyrics if it's applicable. I mean, and if this is a dark case, we need to make you guys laugh a little bit, right? There there was your uh, pre-case palate cleanser. There you go. Perfect. I'll, I'll try and throw in another one at the end. So, this story is about Angela Samoda. So, Angela Marie Samoda was born on September... 19th, 1964, in Alameda, California, to Frank and Betty Ruth Samoda. She is the youngest of five children. I couldn't find much more about her childhood other than the fact that uh, her father, Frank, passed away the year after she was born, and her mother, Betty Ruth, was left to raise all five children on her own. Ooh, that's a lot. Yeah. And in the 60s and 70s, I'm sure that was quite the feat. Oh, yes. Um, so... Angela enrolled in Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas 
to study computer science and electrical engineering. So she was a smart cookie. Yeah. And in the 80s, a female being in that arena was pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, She was also a sister in Zeta Tau Alpha sorority on campus. I hope I said that right, because definitely not a sorority girl. Yeah, me either. In case you guys haven't figured that out yet. (laughs) (laughs) Angela was described by friends and family as being friendly and smart. She was extremely dedicated to her studies and often stayed up until the early hours of the morning studying. But on October 12th, 1984, all of that changed. Angela went to the Texas State Fair with two of her friends, Russell Buchanan and Anita Kadala. They spent most of the night dancing at the Rio Room Dance Club, and Angela dropped Russell and Anita off at their homes around 1 a.m. and headed back to her own house. At about 1.45 a.m., Ben McCall, Angela's boyfriend, received a call from Angela saying that there was a man in her house who had knocked on her door and asked if he could use the bathroom and her phone, because this was the 80s and people did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just let them in, apparently. Nope. So she let him inside the apartment, and Angela told Ben that she would call him back in a few minutes, and then she abruptly hung up the phone. But Ben never received a call back, and when he became worried, he decided to head over to her apartment to check on her. There was no answer when he knocked on the door, and the door was locked, so Ben decided to call the police. The police arrived around 2.17 a.m. on October 13th, They got the keys to Angela's apartment from the property manager and went inside. Police found 20-year-old Angela Simoto lying on her bed. She was naked, stabbed, and raped. Oh, God. Uh, Angela had been brutally murdered. An autopsy would find that Angela had been stabbed 18 times and that the cause of her death was a stab to the heart. God. Yes. Oh, my God. Absolutely awful. I can't even imagine. 18 times. I said it before and I will say it again. I don't know how these people do their jobs. Yeah, I don't either. I I can't imagine. Um, The police had three suspects pretty much right away. Uh, Ben McCall, Angela's boyfriend. Russell Buchanan, the friend that Angela had gone out with that night. And Angela's ex-boyfriend who had threatened her in the past. Ben was the first suspect because the boyfriend, husband, they always did it. Always. Um, He told police that he decided not to go out with the group that night because he had an early morning at work the next day, so he stayed home. Russell was the next suspect because he'd been with Angela that night, and he lived close by. Uh, Police, uh, He told police that he had gone to bed pretty quickly after Angela dropped him off. Um, There wasn't much on the ex-boyfriend other than that he was a suspect, and then they later cleared him. Um, While performing the autopsy and rape kit, the medical examiner discovered that the murderer was a non-secretor, meaning that your blood type won't show up in body fluids such as saliva. Only 20% of the population are non-secretors. That's interesting. So I went down a rabbit hole about this because that's not what I thought non-secretor meant. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, that was my my first thought too. And I'm sure in the back of my head I probably knew what it meant because... I studied science. Yeah. But that was not my first thought, especially, oh, she was raped. So, like, I assumed that it meant something else. Yeah. Um, In those contexts, it would make sense to assume that. Yes. And so I went down a rabbit hole and got the numbers. They weren't listed in any of the articles. I wanted to know 
what percentage of people are secretors versus non-secretors. Yeah. So about 20% of the population are non-secretors. So it's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, there was plenty of other DNA evidence as well um oh sorry i didn't use proper commas in my notes and i got confused on the wording i said this sorry guys <laughs> i type i typed these on my phone so i feel that <laughs> all right so there was plenty of other dna evidence as well but dna evidence for solving cases wasn't very developed in the 80s yeah so they couldn't really do anything with all the evidence that they had uh, the murderer being a non-secretor eliminated both Ben McCall and the ex-boyfriend because they are both secretors. However, Russell Buchanan is in the 20% of the population that is a non-secretor. And he hmm. became the sole suspect in the case. Was that, that's the... That's the friend that she went out with. That's the friend, okay. Mm-hmm. Police became completely fixed on Russell being the murderer even though there was no physical evidence linking him to the case. His story never changed and he passed a polygraph test. I talk about that more later. Okay. Uh, it seems the only link that they had was that Russell was a non-secretor, he'd been out with Angela the night of the murder, and that he had romantic feelings. It was one of those oh. times you guys are supposed to hear my air quotes. For Angela. Um, Russell also lived five minutes away from Angela's apartment. So the police's theory was that Angela turned down Russell's advances and then he brutally murdered her because of that. But why wouldn't she just say, like, hey, Russell, like, is using my house to pee? Like, why would she call her boyfriend and be like, it was some random person? Exactly. Because her boyfriend would have known who Russell was if they, like, all were friends. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, it's really weird. There's a lot of things about this case that are really weird. Um, obviously I'm aware that like that theory is like a real thing like that happens yeah yeah it does how many times have I been hit on and I like have gotten creeped out because the guy like did not want to take no for an answer like yeah and I'm sure at some point I will cover a case that that's exactly what happened so yeah I'm aware that that's a real thing and that does happen but the police just they were stuck on this theory and they wouldn't let it go they Never looked into any other scenario. Um, Russell eventually stopped cooperating with police and hired a lawyer. I talk about this again later. Um, and, you know, I said it last week and I'll say it again. That doesn't mean you're suspicious. It doesn't mean you're guilty. Yeah. But they all were like, oh, he stopped talking to us. Now he has a lawyer. He's guilty. Hire a lawyer. Yeah. Hire a lawyer if you're guilty. Hire a lawyer if you're innocent. If you are in any situation where you are being at- questioned by the police... And they are accusing you of something, hire a lawyer. Yep. Protect yourself. Absolutely. 100% agree. Doesn't matter if you did something or not. You might say something and you word it wrongly Mm -hmm. and they feel like that incriminates you when really you did nothing wrong. Yep. Exactly. Talk to a lawyer. They will help you handle it and get the best situation for you. Exactly. And But to the police, this only solidified their resolve that he was guilty. Uh, so Russell hired a lawyer, a well-known Dallas lawyer named Richard Racehorse Haynes. Allegedly, Racehorse Haynes was a lawyer hired to defend you if you were guilty. I included an eye roll emoji because that sounds like something out of a movie. Again, I'm sure that's a real thing. I'm sure it exists. It was just a, I don't know, it just seemed like something you'd find in like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, seriously. Um, And maybe this was true for a lot of his clients, but... I feel like you can't generalize that for anyone who hires him. Yeah. So, um, 
if I was being falsely accused, I would definitely want to get the best lawyer that I could find. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With a lack of physical evidence against the only suspect in the case, the case went cold for 20 years. Jeez. And I just went on a little bit of rant here in my notes because I get so mad when they stick to one thing and they're like, this person did it. We don't know how he did it, but he did it. And then they don't like, like, if you think he did it, okay, we'll keep looking until you find evidence to prove that or disprove that. Right. Like, just keep looking, keep working on it. It drives me absolutely insane when they get hooked on something and then they let it go cold because it dried up. Yeah. It's like, it's it's the whole Alyssa attorney. Yes. All over again. Where it's yes. like. Like, they had all that stuff against her dad and then they didn't use it. Because they thought she might just have run away. Yeah. And it just, it makes me so mad because there are so many things that like you don't have any evidence okay there's evidence out there you just have to find it yeah so i don't know it just makes me so mad because okay you think russell did it we'll find a connection to russell yeah instead they just put it on the back burner and let it sit there um that's frustrating and i understand that like resources are limited so they probably couldn't do like extensive stuff if nothing is coming of it but they should still be working on it a little bit they can rule out other things while waiting for something to happen yeah it still needs to be you know put it away and then come back to it in a couple months like letting it sit there for 20 years without doing anything though 20 years that is a very like, long this time woman was brutally murdered and they didn't do anything like they just stopped looking so the case was cold for 20 years but there was someone who spent those 20 years trying to keep the investigation going a land Angela's best friend and roommate, Sheila Wasaki. I hope I'm saying her name right. I'm sorry if I'm not Sheila. I apologize. I'm horrible with names. But we're going to say that your last name is Wasaki. Sheila is the fighting force behind the eventual arrest in Angela's case. The best friend we all hope to have. Sheila and Angela met in 1982 when they were paired as roommates at at Southern Methodist University their freshman year. Sheila said that the first semester they didn't get along very well because... Angela was dating a guy that Sheila didn't like, so they didn't they didn't really get along because of that. Yeah. But once they broke up, the girls became best friends and continued being roommates. Uh, like most people that have talked about Angela, Sheila described her as vivacious and friendly, so that Angela had the biggest smile, the kind that lit up her entire face. Oh. Um, Angela was one of the only girls in the computer science and, engi- and electrical engineering department, and seen as a triple threat she had a great personality was beautiful and smart everyone liked angela and angela liked everyone on the night of angela's murder sheila had been staying at her mom's house and a mutual friend named barbara had called sheila at her mom's to tell her the horrible news of angela's murder um sheila wanted to do anything she could to help catch the person who had brutally murdered her best friend she went to the police station and talked to the detectives, trying to give them as much information as she could to help contribute to the investigation. They asked her tons of questions and showed her pictures, asking if she knew people in them. And mixed in with these photos is... I'm sorry, guys. Mixed in with these photos were graphic crime scene photos showing Angela's horribly brutalized body on her bed, eyes still open. Wait, who had those pictures? When the police were talking to Sheila her best friend and roommate, they had a file with pictures in them. And in those pictures were 
crime scene photos of her best friend naked, brutally murdered with her eyes still open. Oh my god. I can't even imagine. That like almost instantly makes me want to cry. That's horrible. Like, it's awful. I can't, I can't imagine seeing pictures like that of anyone I know. Right. I mean, I've seen crime scene photos, so it's, I can't say that I can't imagine never seeing them, but someone that you're so close to. Yeah. It's different when it's someone that you have some kind of relationship with. That's not the way you want to remember your best friend. No, absolutely not. That picture will be burned in your memory forever. That's how you're going to think of them. And that's awful. And that's so traumatizing and so unfair to Sheila. Like, why would they do that? Um, Sheila said that she was absolutely traumatized by these pictures. And I just think it was incredibly insensitive of the police to have those in the same folder that they're showing her. Yeah. Like, they should not have even been in that room. No. Unless they thought that she was somehow involved and they were trying to invoke a reaction, which it doesn't seem like they thought she was involved. Russell was the person that they are convinced did it. I don't know why they would even be in the room when they were talking to her. Like, what kind of person does that? It's it's awful. I have literally no words. I would be so upset if that happened to me. So upset. I I would be so angry. Like, yeah. And she says she was traumatized. Like, I don't doubt it. No one should see someone they care about in that in that state. No. Um, The police told Sheila that they believed that Russell Buchanan was the one who had committed the brutal murder of Angela, and they convinced Sheila of this theory. All right, so this part, so the part about pictures that made you upset, so this part's going to make you really upset. Oh, no. Um, I even put in here a note for me to tell you that it's going to make you mad. Oh, no. Because it made me mad. Okay. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So... Sheila wanted to do anything she could to help solve Angela's case, and the police took full advantage of this. The police encouraged Sheila to have conversations with Russell, trying to get information about what happened the night of the murder. They told her Russell was a murderer, and then they told her to interact with him to see if they could get information to use against him. What in the actual fuck? Like, that's exactly what my note says. What? <laughs> we know he's a murderer, and we know that he murdered your friend, but you just need to take one for the team. But and here, you go talk to him. What? And, and continue being friendly with him. But we just told you that he's a very dangerous and violent person. In what universe does that make any kind of logical sense? Like, those are the people that yeah. you're supposed to be able to trust. They're supposed to be protecting you exactly yeah but yet they're just like oh no big deal just go hang out with this there's more oh no all right so at one point sheila actually went to dinner with russell allowing him to pick her up and drive her to the restaurant this person that she was told murdered her best friend the police convinced her to do this they pretty much used her as bait to get information and sheila didn't learn anything new oh my god russell's story never changed She even told the police that his story never changed, but they couldn't let it go. They were convinced that he was their guy. And police had Russell come in and take a polygraph test, which he passed, like I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But they continued to bring him in for interviews anyway. Like, you're you're harassing him at this point. Yeah. Now it's, it's gone from an investigation to, like, just being obsessive. Yes. 
you have no physical evidence. He's passed a polygraph test. His story has stayed consistent. You're putting other people more at risk now if you really think that he did this. Yeah. Because you just, you cannot let it go. Yes. So this is the point where he hired Race Horse Haynes as his lawyer. But honestly, can you blame him? No, not at because all. Because I can't. And I'd probably do the same thing. Yeah. If I'm getting harassed by the police and I'm constantly being brought in over and over and over to the point now to the other people that aren't even what the police are asking me these questions and mm-hmm. I'm telling them the same freaking story. Like, yeah. I'd want to get a lawyer too. be like, look, like they're harassing the shit out of me. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. And so this is when he stopped cooperating with police, which they just took as him being guilty. I wouldn't cooperate either. Like, I've told you my story. Leave me alone. Yeah. And Sheila is wondering, who could it have been? Was it Russell? Was it someone else? You know, she's just got all these questions. And Angela's murder completely traumatized Sheila. I mean, who wouldn't be traumatized? Especially having being forced to see pictures was it wasn't even like hey do you want to like well and I'm sure like the murder on its own probably is traumatizing enough yeah than, like being shown pictures without like consent or warning <laughs> yeah so she dropped out of school moved back in with her mom and for a long time she slept on the floor in her mom's room because she didn't want to sleep alone justifiable I mean for real uh, the case totally consumed her life. She would meet with the detective that was on the case at different bars, and they would talk about the case in hushed whispers. And they had spent so much time together that when she got married in 1988, she invited him to her wedding. Oh, my God. Because they just communicated so much that they knew each other. Personally. You know, in a pretty large capacity. Yeah. Um, but before Sheila knew it, it was 2004, and it had been 20 years since Angela had been murdered, and her case was still unsolved. Sheila now lived in Tennessee with her husband and their two sons, and one night she was doing her Bible study, something that she struggled a lot with because of her dyslexia, and the small print made it even more difficult for her to focus and be able to read the words on the page, and while she was trying to do this, she looked to her right, and there was Angela smiling at her. Hmm. Of course, Sheila thought that she was dreaming because Angela had been gone for 20 years and couldn't possibly be standing next to her. Her vision of Angela didn't say anything, just smiled at her with the big smile Angela had been known for. Sheila believed that this was a message that it was time to finally get justice for Angela. She grabbed her phone and called the Dallas Police Department right then and asked for the cold case division. Upon being told that there was no cold case division, they told her that she needed to talk to Homicide. So Sheila asked for the detective that all those years ago she had been working so closely with and left him a message. He never returned her call. Ugh. He never returned any of her calls, ever. She said wow. over the next few years, she prob- over a period of time, she probably called 700 times, and he never once called her back. This man that she'd been so close to that she invited him to her wedding just blew her off. Asshole. And Sheila said that the most heartbreaking part of all of this is that when she talked to someone about it, she found out that in the 20 years since Angela's murder, not one single person had called to ask about the case. Not one person. Not one person in cared enough. In 20 years had called to ask about this case. That's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. And it made me wonder how many other cases there are that people aren't asking about. How many other people have died and their cases have gone cold 
and no one's asking probably way 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 more than we could even that makes imagine me so sad yeah she couldn't believe that no one had asked in 20 years how could someone be so brutally murdered in such a horrible manner and not one person had called to ask how the case was going how does that happen she said that to this day the thought of it still makes her cry how could no one want to know who did this and why they did it it makes me so sad it makes me i don't know i mean like no family except that was what i was thinking she was the youngest of five she had a mom like her mom was still alive her mom didn't die until like last year or something so like none of her family wanted to know what happened it's like they gave up and they just didn't want to I would try. like to think that my family would continue fighting until they found out what happened to me. Me too. I know they would. And I know they would. I mean, side note, my brother-in-law's a police officer, so he probably would work to figure <laughs> it out. Um, But, you know, I would just, I would hope that <laughs> yeah. someone would care. I would. I would care. Thanks. You'd be my Sheila. Yes. Absolutely. I hope I don't get brutally murdered. So I don't ever don't want to have to, to, have to do that, but... Thanks. Thanks. That took a really dark turn. It did. But so it is a lot of things. Should have brought Rogue with me for a little bit of a light, <laughs> mood lightener. <laughs> Who am I kidding? He would be back there with your kids. Yeah. He, he would be playing with them right now. So once Sheila started calling, she didn't stop. She wasn't giving up on this, and she wasn't taking no for an answer. She knew they were missing something, and she was going to find out what it was. So she started taking things into her own hands. She started researching for similar crimes in Angela's area at the time of her murder. She printed out reports on the rapes during the time frame, their locations, and who was arrested for them. She was trying to find some sort of connection. At the time, Sheila and her family lived in a gated, guarded community, and she would often talk to the security people who worked in the community. And one day, she mentioned Angela's case and the research she'd done and her frustration about how the Dallas Police Department had just blown her off. The guard she was talking to told her that she would make a great private investigator. She said that she made up her mind right then, and that night she told her husband that she was going to become a private investigator. It was 2004, and she was in her early 40s, but she was determined. In Tennessee, to become a private investigator, you have to be sponsored by a company. And lucky for her, the security guys for her neighborhood were more than happy to sponsor and train her. That's awesome. Studying for the licensing test became a family affair. Sheila's sons would help her study the different laws and all the things she needed to know, and with the help of her family and the security guys in her neighborhood, she was prepared and passed the licensing exam and became a licensed private investigator in Tennessee. Now that she was a licensed PI, Sheila thought that maybe that would help the Dallas Police Department take her more seriously. At this point, they were pretty tired of her, and they finally decided to reopen the case. Finally. Finally. And probably the best decision that they ever made on this case was giving it to a female detective. Detective Linda Crum was assigned to Angela's case in 2006. She did her homework, she studied the case, and learned all that she could out of the file. Detective Crum called Sheila, and when they talked, Sheila could tell that she really knew the case and that she'd done her homework. She shared with Sheila that they had DNA evidence, and now 22 years later, they could actually use this evidence since science had come far enough to actually be able to test it yeah um most people that are into true crime and investigations and follow these things know that it's pretty uncommon for a cold case to still have evidence especially after that many 20 years. years later it's yeah things get misplaced they get damaged because they weren't stored properly 
Or in, like you said, like Texas's case, like hurricanes, hurricanes and everything's like that. You know, things just, happen and yeah. things get ruined. And so it's pretty amazing that after all this time, they still had evidence that was even usable. Yeah. And Sheila was blown away that all this evidence had just been sitting there all of these years waiting for someone to look at it. They had Angela's fingernails with the murderer's DNA underneath because she'd fought back. They had semen from the rape kit, more DNA. Mm-hmm. And at the time of Angela's murder, DNA testing was incredibly new and very limited, but now, more than 20 years later, they could test the DNA. The police department started the process of requesting the testing in 2008 and had results in 2009. In real life, it doesn't work the way it does on the shows like Criminal Minds, CSI, and NCIS. These things take time. Yeah. It's a process. You have to do it exactly right. Or you ruin the sample and might not be able to do the test again if you need to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes in a trial, the defense will want to retest it with their own party, uh, third-party labs. And so if you ruin the whole sample, you don't have enough for other people to test. It's very... You've got one shot. It's a very time-consuming process. It doesn't happen instantaneously like... Doesn't like, oh, we're going to get their DNA. Oh, look, we got it back. No. Um, we've come a long way, but we're not quite there. <laughs> yeah. Um, in 2009, Detective Crum called Sheila and said, we got him. At this point, Sheila still believed that Russell Buchanan was the guy. She was fully prepared for Detective to tell her that. Tell her that they got Russell Buchanan. He did it. She believed it. He did it because the police all those years ago told her he did it. Mm-hmm. But that's not the name that Detective Crum said. Instead of... Saying that they got Russell Buchanan, Detective Crum said that the murderer was Donald Bess. This completely threw Sheila because she didn't know a Donald Bess. But the DNA evidence from the rape kit in Angela's apartment weren't matched to Bess. So who is Donald Bess? I think Sheila says it best when she says that she refers to him as the Beast. In 1984, when Angela was raped and brutally murdered, Bess was on a parole for a 25-year sentence he was serving for a 1978 aggravated rape and aggravated kidnapping 25 years and he was out on parole after six wow a prison system makes absolutely no sense to me one only one year after Bess murdered angela he was sentenced to life in prison for aggravated rape aggravated kidnapping and sexual assault for a completely unrelated case wow in 2010 Bess was tried and convicted of angela's rape and murder while he was on trial other women started to come forward and say that Bess had assaulted them. Even Bess's ex-wife came forward and said that during their three-year marriage, Bess had been abusive to both her and their child. Bess was found guilty and sentenced to death. And to this day, Bess, who's now 74 years old, is still on death row with no execution date scheduled. <laughs> Sheila's the real hero of this story. Without her perseverance and dedicated to getting just- dedication to getting justice for Angela, it may never have happened. Sheila's the best friend we all hope to have. When Sheila became a private investigator, she only intended to work as a PI until Angela's case was closed, but she started getting letters from people asking for her help, and she decided that she'd keep her license a little longer and help others who were in need. After finding out that Donald Best was the murderer and Russell Buchanan had been innocent all along, Sheila felt terrible. She contacted Russell and asked if they could get together. She wanted to apologize to him for believing that he was a rapist and murderer for the past two and a half decades. Russell thanked Sheila for her perseverance. He was grateful for her searching to find the truth and get justice for Angela, but he was also thankful because after 26 years, he was finally deemed innocent. I mean, good for him for at least speaking with her. 
and thanking her instead of being like, how could you thought, you know, instead of being like blowing her off and being upset and being mad, he was able to just be. 26 years is a really long time for people to think that you brutally murdered someone. Yeah. When you were innocent the whole time. But that's the thing is that unfortunately happens quite often where people get. It does. I can't imagine that that's any good for your mental health either. I mean, as far as everything else, I mean. I mean, there was just a case this week where a wrongful conviction from 1999 was overturned and he was released. He was 17 when he went to jail and he's now 41. It, the pictures of what he looked like when he went into now is just, it's so sad. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I'm referring to um, the serial podcast that started i don't even remember what year it started i don't remember Do either remember? so the first season of serial was about adnan saeed who was a high school student in baltimore and they convicted him and sentenced him to life i believe yeah, i'm pretty sure it was life um for the murder of his ex-girlfriend and he claimed his innocence the whole time and Serial was the first podcast I ever listened to it was the first case I ever got into and I thought he was innocent from the moment I learned about it and he was finally freed because they now have evidence that links to two other suspects and his name has been cleared and he's home now but he spent 23 years of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And, but thanks to the Innocence Project, he is a free man. The Innocence Project and Serial. Yeah. Um, highly recommend checking out Serial if you have not. The first season on Adnan is very, very good. Mm-hmm. And so that's it for my story. I'm sorry to be a downer. Well, you know... Um, it was really exciting to tell you about Ed not being freed, but it's depressing also because he lost 23 years of his life. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, at least for us, after we end this one, we can drink some wine and... Yes, yes. <laughs> bring that was, down that our was nerves. a nice sagu, as Ed would say. Yes, a nice sagu. Um, that was a nice segue into our little outro thing that we do. Yes. So that one was a doozy, but again, it just shows that with perseverance and time, if evidence is stored correctly, things can get solved. People's names can get cleared. People can get answers to things that have been left unanswered for years and years and years. There can which be is, justice. There's never truly closure, but there, there can be justice. There can be justice. And if you think something is going on, do not give up. If you want answers for something, don't ever stop because you don't know when there could be a time where you could get the answers that are deserved for these victims and for the family and for everyone that's involved. Exactly. So with that being said... If you have any other cases that are like this that you would like us to cover or any unsolved cases that need to be brought to more of a platform, 
for help, you can reach out to us on our email address, which is trulycreepypodcast at gmail.com. We also have our social media on Instagram at trulycreepy, on Twitter at truly underscore creepy. You can reach out to us there. Even if you don't have any comments about a case you would like for us to cover, if you'd like to say hi, if you have any paranormal stuff, if you want to be featured on a listener's episode, send us an email or DM us on our social medias. We have our Patreon where you can sign up and become a 5 or $10 donor, become a patron. $5 gets you access to the podcast early. It gives you some behind-the-scenes little podcast snippets. It gives you pictures and videos and a bunch of extra content that we exclusively post on there. Our $10 gets you access to all of those things along with our 19 Crimes Wine monthly episodes, which we are going to be recording and we will have our September one up soon. If you want to be able to listen to those, head on over to the Patreon, search Truly Creepy, will pop up and you can become a patron and get access to all of that cool stuff. Absolutely. And as always, keep it truly creepy. I'm going to say bye, but really we're just going to go pour some wine. So we'll see you later. Bye.